Oh yeah, episode 170. Holy crap. Episode 170 with Dr. Mike T. Nelson is about to begin, and this one is filled with a lot of information. Uh, If you don't know who Mike is, you should look him up because he has a long, long list of degrees, PhDs, and every certification you can think of under the sun. And he had a lot to talk about from, you know, the skin, recovery, something called the dolphin, which is really interesting that you should definitely check out. And I'm going to definitely research more about. We talk about micronutrients and just overall his obsession with kite surfing and death metal. So great episode filled with a lot of um, good information. So without further ado, here's Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Say hello. Hello. How are you guys? Uh, So I always like to start the show with some easy questions just to get the juices flowing and uh, make the guests look super smart. (laughs) All right. Um, So the first easy one is what are you currently reading uh, actually, what I'm currently reading right now is The Oxygen Advantage by Patrick McEwen is probably the main one I'm reading. I'm about halfway through that. I'm kind of about halfway through and almost through a couple other ones. Um, I guess I'll throw them out anyway. Uh, the new Michael Pollan book uh, is, is very good. Basically talking about um, psychedelics as kind of a window into how we learn and some cool neuroscience. And then The Body Keeps the Score, which is a little bit more about uh, trauma and sort of different things along that area, a little bit of heart rate variability and some other stuff. So those are the main three right now. Awesome. So you're one of those people that, like, reads multiple books at the same time, huh? I do. I've been trying not (laughs) to do that because I have a habit of starting too many books, but then it's like, okay, I want to read part of this one, but I want to make sure I actually apply that part. So I don't want to read any more because I'm afraid I won't apply what I should. And then, ah, that one's a little bit too heavy. So I'm going to read this one instead. Um, For me, like even like The Body Keeps the Score is awesome book, but sometimes I find that it's it's just a little bit too heavy for the mood that I'm in. So I'll find myself picking something else. So it's usually about two to four at any one time. I try to cap it at three to four though. Jeez, all right. So how many books a year do you go through? Uh, you know, I don't really know, to be honest. It, it's it's one of those bizarro things where I always feel like I'm not reading as much as I should, even though I probably read more than most. I mean, I primarily just read research studies, I mean, more so mm-hmm. than books even. Um, and even then, I just this year I started tracking, although I kind of, fell away from it. My goal was to read one research study a day and I haven't tracked it for the last couple months. So I might be off a little bit, but uh, I just pull them and I put them in Evernote. And so I have my iPad is where I primarily read. So on my iPad, I don't have Facebook. I don't have anything else on there. And then the folder is synced offline. So I can just go offline and I'm not tempted to look at anything else. And then once I'm done, I put them in another folder that says uh, studies that I I have read. And that's a long to-do list. (laughs) 
Um, and there's always more than you'll ever get to. I mean, yeah. like literally, like my, my to read folder right now is 731 <laughs> studies. <laughs> Jeez, that's <laughs> <Because> obscene. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, so, other easy question: What do you got planned for the weekend? Uh, this weekend, I'm going to a concert on Friday night. So, going to see uh, Amorphous, just kind of a death metal band from Finland. Nice. Uh, they're playing with Dark Tranquility, Moonspell, and one of their opening band that I'm blinking on right now. So, I'm going there with my sister and my friend Sarah. And then getting up super early Saturday to go visit my parents. They live in Alexandria, Minnesota, about two and a half hours away, because it's my grandma's 100th birthday. Wow. So, it turns yeah. 100. So we're having a big celebration uh, for her there. So I'll probably hang out there Saturday, part of Sunday. Hopefully get to ride on the lake. How about a, a foil board that I've been trying to learn how to ride? So give that a, a whirl again on Sunday. And then we're actually probably driving to visit uh, some of my wife's relatives Sunday night and Monday. Visit them in Brainerd, which is about two hours away. And then also picking up a used freezer that I can fill with water and play around with cold water immersion at my house. <laughs> nice. That was a very detailed weekend, but uh, I'm Probably happy. Tell anyone. Gives a crap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But you like brought up two things that I like, I'm really curious about. So like, is it uh, kite surfing that you do? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge kite surfer and everybody should do it. It's super fun. <laughs> Take a lesson though, kids. <laughs> how, how, how did you get into that? You know, I saw it years ago. So for the longest time, I, I wanted to go uh, windsurfing because, I don't know, I've just seen people do it, and I'm like, wow, that looks badass. So years ago, like once I graduated from school full-time the first time, uh, I started working for a med tech company. So I saved up my vacation, ran into a guy who's like, yeah, we're going to, to Bonaire, this Caribbean island, and it's a perfect place to learn to windsurf. We're going for 10 days. I'm like, all right, I'll do that. So long story short, went down there, just beat the shit out of myself trying to learn how to windsurf. And a buddy I met along the way uh, tried to kiteboard at that time. This was probably 2003, I think. And at that time, the technology was really not so good. And I watched him basically get what they call teabagged, where you get pulled up in the air, dropped in the water, pulled up in the air, dropped in the water, literally all the way across this bay, and then all the way again. <laughs> I asked him afterwards, I said, well, well, how is your, your kiteboarding? He's like, oh, he's like, I hurt everywhere so bad. I'm like, well, was it even any fun? He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up waiting about it was three years after that. The technology started getting a little bit better. I started having a little bit of deep power. So I took a lesson here in Minnesota in the winter when the lakes freeze over. It's easier to learn in the winter. And then transition to learning in the spring. And then, yeah, I've just been doing it off and on ever since then. Awesome. Sweet. Um, so before we get into the whole interview, if you can just do like a small little introduction to my audience of like who you are, what you do, and how did you get into the industry in the first place? Yeah. So I guess I got into the industry just because like most guys, I graduated high school, started going to college. I actually left high school a year early to go to college because I hated high school. <laughs> my two best friends were leaving and I'm like, oh, screw this if I'm staying without them. So I left a year early, which was nice because I got a first year of college paid for and started, I guess, formally lifting then. So I was the uh, same height I am now. I was 6'3". 
I uh, weighed 156 pounds, so I was like a eel-shaped rake with teeth. <laughs> and figured I should probably lift weights. Signed up for a weightlifting class, and I remember walking in, and I was so excited. I'm like, this is great. I'm at college. The, the guy is going to teach us, like, actually how to lift. And he basically just signed us in and never taught us a damn thing. So I was like, well, that's kind of disappointing. And I remember the, the first day he took attendance, gave us the intro, He's looking around. He's like, ah, and some of you here really need to lose a lot of weight. He points at me and goes, holy crap, some of you need to gain a lot of weight. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um, I'd always been fascinated by uh, physiology. So as my undergrad, I got a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science. I literally took anatomy and physiology to work on cadavers just for fun as an extra credit. And then transferred after that. I did two years of postgraduate work at Michigan Tech in the UP of Michigan, a little piece of land above Wisconsin that's actually not quite Canada yet. And then another two and a half years I was there, I did a master's in mechanical engineering, uh, biomechanics. Even though my research was more on the biomedical side, basically I did a computer-generated model of uh, zapping a monkey head with a ray gun. So at the, at the time, they, they said, oh, we're looking at these gigahertz waves for collision avoidance systems on cars for new safety regulations. And I was going to design a computer-generated model to test it. And I'm like, okay, sure, you'll give me some funding. So I had to go back and learn heat transfer and thermal one and thermal two and conduction heat transfer. I'm like, well, I was wondering why there's people from Brooks Air Force Base in Texas on some of the papers, that uh, one paper I wrote. I'm like, well, whatever, you know, I, I got my money, I got done, finally graduated, it took two and a half years. About five years later, my former advisor sends me this little clip from the paper that says, military declassifies ray gun. And basically it was for a, a non-lethal crowd dispersion is what they wanted it for. And then after 9-11, or actually recording on the anniversary of 9-11 here today, the every branch of the military wanted one so that they could point it at a crowd of people, and it would feel like your skin is being burnt by a light bulb, but there wasn't, at least we can tell, any deep tissue heating effect. So if you go up in like the gigahertz range, your skin penetration depth is really small. So you light up kind of all the sympathetic nerve endings on your skin, hurts like hell, but there's no uh, deep tissue necrosis or cell death or anything like that. Um, I tell people if your microwave in your house operated on the gigahertz range at a high enough power, you'd burn the crap out of the outside of your food and the inside would be just completely frozen still. So there's not much uh, penetration depth on it. So that was my, my thesis for the, the first eight years of college. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. What's interesting is like when people search you up, you have like this long list of like degrees and education and things that you've like dipped your toe in. And I'm kind of curious, like what kind of drove you to learn this much or like step into so many different like avenues of, you know, education? Like what, what was the driving force behind it? I think part of it, it was just, ignorance and not knowing what I'm getting into. Um, you know, because looking back, I always loved anatomy and physiology, but I never knew what the hell I would ever do with it. You know, at the time, I'm like, well, I'm not going to go all the way and get a PhD. That's crazy talk. You know, I'm not sure I want to teach. And I used to take apart all sorts of stuff and attempt to put it back together and didn't really ever go so well. So I had a 
a 10 scale radio control car that I would spend literally hours just fixing and modifying and, and changing around and building custom parts for, but I love biology. And when I was four and a half, I actually had a open heart surgery. So I have a, or had a atrial septal defect. I was surgically repaired in 1978. So at that time, there was only a handful of places that were actually even doing surgery on kids. I was four and a half years old at the time. And having to go back and, you know, have all the checks. And luckily, everything was fine. I haven't had any issues uh, from it. But I think something that early on, you kind of were like, oh, physiology, this is kind of interesting. And the pediatric cardiologist I had was super cool. He'd have all the little models, and he'd explain to you what was going on and show you the, the x-rays and the imaging and stuff. So I think part of that kind of probably formed my interest in physiology and then tearing stuff apart, everyone's like, oh, you should just go into you know, biomedical engineering. But at the time, that wasn't really a thing, like in the mid-90s. I talked to some people in HR departments and said, yeah, I'm thinking about doing biomedical engineering. You know, what classes should I take? What should I do? And they're like, well, our advice right now is pick a different major because we don't have a little checkbox in HR for that. So we throw those, like, resumes away. <laughs> I'm like... Well, that's really disappointing because at the time it was very much, okay, you're either mechanical engineer or chemical or electrical. It was so new that there wasn't people in industry in hiring positions that had that background. Therefore, they don't really know what it was. So that's why I ended up going the mechanical route. I worked for a cardiac medical device company for 10 years, actually 12 years. And they said, hey, we'll, uh, we'll start paying for your continuing education. When I got done the first time, I'm like, nope. Never going back to school. I did my seven and a half years of full time. And then about two years into it, I'm like, well, if you're going to pay for me to take classes. So I started taking advanced physiology. I ran into a guy who I knew from Michigan Tech, was working for a different medical device company. And he's like, well, you know, don't bother getting another master's. You should just, you know, take all the prereqs and apply to do a PhD in biomedical engineering. And I'm like, well, that sounds pretty cool. So I did all the classes for that except two classes, but working in uh, industry in a company that doesn't sponsor labs at the University of Minnesota, getting funding and things like that was a real pain in the butt because of non-disclosures and things like that. So at the end, I remember sitting in a class that was on MRIs. They had all sorts of math I didn't understand. And I had been debating about changing exercise physiology since pretty much I signed up. I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. And I'm like, man, being a trainer and having a PhD, that's, that's kind of like a sledgehammer to kill a mosquito. Um, and I'm like, I'll just finish and you know get my PhD in biomedical engineering and figure it out. Um, but I ended up dropping out of the program because the, the hard part is about the ignorance is you get so far down one path, it's really hard, you know, the, the sunk cost fallacy. So people still have crappy stuff in their apartment or townhouse from Ikea because they spent two and a half days putting the shit together <laughs> and they just don't want to get rid of it because of the time and effort they put into it, even though they don't like it. That was kind of where I was at. So I ended up uh, dropping out completely, went over the exercise physiology department that fall. Uh, my goal was, okay, I don't have to worry about math. I'll just learn about exercise phys. That didn't work out so well because I got assigned heart rate variability and uh, metabolic flexibility which in hindsight was actually really good. But at the time, the whole goal was to use math to look at fine scale variability across physiologic systems. 
And most people in exercise phys don't really have any math. So I was a new person who transferred in, and that's how I got assigned those those projects. And then it took me seven years to graduate from that because oh, that was kind of a debacle that we don't need to don't need to bore people with. But it uh, yeah took a long time. Had multiple studies that didn't work out. Got farmed out to the epidemiologic department for a year and a half on a study that. Never got published because the result was negative and they opted not to publish it. So therefore, I didn't have another paper. So I lost one and a half years of my life doing that. And, but I did finally graduate, started training people uh, along the way and just started taking more continuing ed. And it's about where I'm at now. Wow. Okay. Quite the journey. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So it like- helps that I'm 44. So I've been doing it for a while and spent... Yeah, almost uh, 18-ish years in college. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I wouldn't recommend anyone starting out. (laughs) Oh, fair enough. Um, So that I'm also really curious is, like, with all this knowledge that you have, like, how do you, like, structure an hour if someone decided to hire you? Like, what's your typical client look like? Like, who is she or he is? Like, just kind of paint me a picture of who kind of comes to you for help. Yeah, most of the clients I work with now, again, I only work with a, a handful of people online. I usually limit it between 12 to 15, uh, just because it gets, in my opinion, gets to be a little bit too much after that. When you're doing a lot of stuff custom, I mean, that's obviously a lot more time, too. Um, average client is usually anywhere from 28 to maybe in their 40s. Um, paradoxically, most of the products that I have that people have purchased have been male, almost all of my online clients, 80, 70% are actually female. And most of them are trainers or working in the fitness industry. Most of them are intermediate to advanced. And then they all have something that's kind of wonky that no one can figure out <laughs> from um, it's kind of weird metabolic stuff or weird like pain movement stuff. But it's usually not bad enough that they go to a physical therapist or they're working with a functional med doc. Sometimes they are, and so that I'm coordinating uh, with them if they need that kind of help. Uh, but a lot of times they're in the kind of gray area where, yeah, my functional med doc said everything is fine. Physical therapist said, you know, it's not really that bad. It's not from a, a frank injury per se. So there's usually something uh going on in that area that they can't just, you know, copy a program from online and, and have it work. Oh, fair enough. Do you, do you still see people in person? I see some people in person. Um, I did in-person training for a while. I worked at a gym that ended up filing bankruptcy and didn't tell me. So that's fun. <laughs> so up to the gym one day where you're working and you're like, yeah, we filed bankruptcy right to this address in Iowa to get all your money back. I'm like, oh, Jeez. But it would have been nice with a heads-up notice there. Um, so at that point, I had to figure out, I'm like, oh, am I going to try to work at a different club? What am I going to do? I uh, ended up taking a couple clients and had them pay for a year ahead of time in cash, gave them 85% off, <clears throat> and used some of that money to just start putting equipment in my gym, in my garage, actually. So I trained people out of there for quite a while. And then now, since I travel so much and the schedule's kind of crazy, I do one-off sessions for people in town or people that, that fly in or travel in, just looking at exercise form, kind of more on the education side. 
Um, I do some hands-on stuff via reflexive performance reset, some visceral work, uh, some some other stuff uh, with a stimulation device called the Dolphin, which is more for uh, scar release and a few other things like that. Um, but those are usually just kind of scheduled uh, one-off type appointments when I'm around in town. Oh, fair enough. Well, what's the Dolphin? Uh, dolphin is something called um, a micropoint stimulation or a microcurrent, actually, MPS. And it's a very small amount of current that's put across these two probes. And it makes this kind of weird, funny noise. How I found out about it was probably three years ago now. I was at the Swiss conference in Canada. Uh, Dr. Ken Kinnikan runs it. Awesome conference. Highly recommend people go to it. And there's this guy there from the company, you know, working on people with this device that's making all this funny noise. So I'm just kind of standing there watching him. I'm like, hmm, well, that's kind of impressive. You'd see tissue kind of change color and stuff. I asked him, I said, well, what is this for? He's like, well, it's primarily for working on scar tissue. And so he's working on people. So I wait around and I said, you know, do you mind, you know, looking at the scar I have? He's like, oh, okay, sure. So lay down. He's like, all right, lay down, take your shirt off. So I take my shirt off and because I've had open heart surgery, I've got a massive scar from just above my belly button all the way up to my collarbone. Because they do a thoracotomy, they basically take a bone saw and cut through your sternum and they cut through the side of your heart and then they had to sew the atrium back together. And I still have the little on x-ray, it looks like basically bread twisties <laughs> that they use to <laughs> put my sternum back together. So I take my shirt off, lay down, and he looks at me, and he's like, holy shit, this will change your life. I'm like, what? This guy's crazy. I don't know. This is pretty wacky. So he's doing this thing, and at the end, they do some stuff with acupuncture points, and I'm like, whatever. So I'm asking about it, and he's like, well, you know, it's passing this small current. It's generating local ATP, we believe, and the scar will you know, be better over time. And he's like, because scars, in their theory, tend to be a stressor to the sympathetic system, especially in more Chinese medicine, if you've got midline scars. And you should see a big change in your autonomics. And I'm like, well, that's pretty interesting, because I said I measure my heart rate uh, variability each day, and you know, I'll be able to tell you what the difference was the next day. And I kind of thought that he's going to be like, oh, you know, that was just kind of, that's not really true. You may not see a difference. And he's like, oh, that's cool. Let me know what you find. Like, oh, that's kind of oddly positive. So the next day I come back and my HRV had gone up, I think it was around 13 to 15 points overnight, um, which is a pretty high change considering I was you know, at a conference and pretty tired and that kind of stuff. So I ended up buying a couple of the units, uh, did a bunch of their training, and I had an NDA with them for a while. We we're going to do some research, but it didn't pan out. And... What I found just in practice is if people have a midline scar, it appears to work quite well. Uh, if women have a C-section scar, it's kind of a midline scar just in a different area. Um, and I have used it for you know injury, local tissue recovery, things of that nature too. So that's the exact mechanism of how it works. Just a couple studies that are out now, and there's you know hopefully a whole bunch more in the next next couple of years. We'll have more of an idea on the exact mechanism that sounds freaking awesome because like I, i'm just like thinking to myself like so many people have like you know if they got their acl reconstructed and they have those giant ass scars on their knees and i'm like that sounds pretty sweet if they could actually improve that 
Yeah, it, you know, out of, I've done a fair amount of scar work on people, and it definitely seems to help. Uh, the first session is usually the best in terms of a nervous system response. And, I mean, I still have the scar now. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to make it completely go away that we know of. But it's really not that obvious. Like, the skin tone is very much the same as the tissue around it. Uh, it's much smaller. Uh, it's not nearly as raised. I had some uh, keloid formation towards the bottom, which is almost kind of normal now. Um, so I wish I would have taken a few more pictures to kind of see just the before after. And I've probably only done it a total of maybe 12 times. So it's not like I've uh, done it with a really high frequency either. Fair enough. And can you, like, touch on the acupuncture that that dude at the conference was doing on you? Because, like, I, I've seen, like, IMS or, like, dry needling done. And, yeah. um, like, I get acupunctures from, like, Chinese medicine and some of the people that have brought it up to me, they almost kind of presented in, you know, not so science-based. So I'm kind of curious about your opinion about it. Like, you know, whatever, you know, you've seen in the industry that actually works, I'm kind of curious just to get you talking about it. Yeah, and I mean, I'm definitely not an acupuncture expert by any means, but from what I've seen in practice, the interesting part about that system is you can kind of do quote-unquote acupuncture, but you're not putting needles in anyone, so there's no blood, so it's an FDA-approved over-the-counter device from a licensing standpoint. Um, so people can buy it, you know, and do it on themselves if they wanted to, if they have a lot of chronic pain and things of that nature. Um, the studies are, like, super mixed, right? So you have some studies where they did a randomized placebo-controlled trial. They do an acupuncture intervention on the actual acupuncture points, according to the meridians. And then they do kind of what I call the toothpick study, where they kind of poke other areas that are not acupuncture sites. And in terms of pain... You know, in one of those studies, they didn't see hardly any difference. I Meaning, in the placebo intervention, the sham group got almost the same response as the acupuncture group. Now, it is, if you look at a lot of pain research, uh, pain is extremely susceptible to a placebo. Doesn't mean it's good or bad, that's just kind of the way it is. If you look at other studies, it says, well, maybe there's something there, but I mean, I'll be the first to admit that a lot of those studies are not. Uh, highly controlled. The thing that I found super weird was uh, the device, because it's putting uh, electricity in, uh, has a way of measuring the resistance. So you'll see a light light up and you'll see a tone. And I'm not very good at finding acupuncture sites, but the tone will change once you hit an acupuncture site. And I'm like, wait a minute. So you're telling me that the tone will change when I hit an acupuncture site. And you'll hear it kind of go from like, I'm like, wait a minute, how the hell does that work? You know, am I pushing harder? Am I not pushing harder? Do I unconsciously know where the acupuncture sites are, even though I'm not trained in acupuncture? <laughs> and at the training, I was able to reproduce it on, you know, about 10 different people. It's like, huh, sure as shit, you get to the, you know, H7 point on the wrist, and the tone would change, and right about that area. Um, some of them you could get just approximately in the area, and there'd be a tone change. And some of them you had to be, you know, pretty precise. So that's the thing that I can't figure out. I'm like, okay, if all acupuncture is utter bunk, 
and doesn't mean anything, then why does the tone change when you appear to get to something that's an acupuncture site? Why would there be a change in resistance, at least on you know a whole bunch of people that I've tested it on? So that's the part that makes me go, well, maybe there's something there. And if you talk to people who do a lot of Chinese medicine in general, although there's some data that disputes this, that they did do um, cadaver studies and some other uh, interesting studies where they did kind of cut people up for the purpose of study. But in general, that whole philosophy is developed without really cutting people up compared to more of a kind of Western philosophy. And my guess, and this is purely just a guess, that the meridians and other things they talk about may be accurate, but it's just described in a different way because they're trying to explain phenomenon without kind of cutting up the body and looking at it from more of an inside perspective. Again, that's that's my best educated guess as kind of an outsider to that area right now. No, no, fair enough. And, like, I'm happy we're going down this route because, like, lately I've been listening to other podcasts and kind of, like, the theme I've been noticing is a lot of people are talking about the skin and how mm-hmm. it's almost like now our third brain. <laughs> sure. Because so much sensory information to it. So I'm kind of curious about your opinion about, like, rock tape and, like, K-tape. Like, have you seen any, you know, worthwhile things with it? Yeah, I've played around with it for quite a while. Um, I did some of the early training through uh, Z Health, through Dr. Cobb. I was one of the first uh, master trainers. So I did their R phase, I phase, S phase, T phase, 9S, master trainer cert, all that kind of stuff. And it was pretty interesting. I mean, I'm definitely glad that I did it. Um, in practice, I do things a little bit uh, differently now, but I'm definitely glad that I did it and it was very good. Um, one of the things that they showed us there was how to use uh, kinesio tape. And again, I mean, I haven't taken official rock tape or kinesio tape course. But to your point about skin, that there's something you can do called pressure checking. And in essence, what you're doing is you're putting your fingers on someone and you can feel around different layers. So if I have very light pressure, that's a dermal layer, right? So you're just on the dermis, the skin. If I add a little bit more pressure, I'm probably on the fascial layer, kind of the connective tissue between everything. And if I apply more pressure, although you're really thinking about kind of visualizing deeper structures, that would be a deeper pressure. And what I can do at a base level is I can check the different directions of the tissue. So if someone does this, like they can check on their hand, they can apply a little bit of pressure, they can try to slide the skin up, down, left, and right. And they may find, so like on my wrist, that the left side is a little bit more restricted when I do that. So I would say I've got some type of barrier in the layer of the skin to the left side. I can do the same thing with the fascial layer. I can do the same thing with deep pressure. If I want to get fancy, I can check you know, oblique angles and that kind of stuff too. And I learned that in uh, T-Phase from Z-Health from Dr. Cobb. And that basically cost me a lot of money. But I figured out, oh, that's really how people do body work. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, it's more complicated and there's other techniques and there's other things you can do. But at a really, really base level, that's kind of basically what you're doing. So what I think kinesiology or rock tape or things of that nature come in, it's a way of holding the skin layer, the dermis, 
in a specific orientation. So how I'll use it is if I do work on that area, I don't see a change or maybe I see a big change, but I want something to kind of stay a little bit longer. I'll test the dermal layer and be like, oh, okay, going to the left seems restricted. I'll hold it to the left and I'll, you know, muscle test or measure range of motion or maybe have them do a squat if they had a hard time doing a squat before, whatever the thing was that they're kind of complaining about and see if it gets better. If it does get better, I can do tissue work on that area. I could have them apply some type of movement on their own to try to mobilize that area on their own. And I could put a piece of kinesio tape over it, stretch it in that direction, and then tack it down. So what I'll do is I'll take maybe about an inch of the tape just uh, away from that area, peel part of the backing off, you know, secure that area that's about, you know, maybe an inch or so, depends on how sticky your tape is. And I'm going to pull that area that's now stuck to the skin, and then I'm going to stick down the rest of it. So in essence, instead of me holding my fingers there, pulling to the left, I'm using the tape to do that for me. So what am I doing? I'm applying uh, input to the nervous system in that direction, and now that will stay for a period of time, so that input is more of a constant now. Oh, it makes sense. And any of that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, it did <laughs> definitely. Um, what's interesting too, like I'm really curious about pain right now. And you know, when I took the rock tape course, the instructor was talking about like you get this huge placebo effect on a certain amount of people because like pain is so oh. emotional, right? Yes. Like you put some like you put a band-aid on your knee, you feel invincible now, right? Like you tape an athlete's ankle and he goes play, you know, a game of football. He's going to believe that his ankle is indestructible. So I almost think like, you know, if you tape a sore lower back, that individual is going to be like, Oh, okay. With this tape, I'm going to be protected. Like my workout's going to be fine. So it's kind of interesting, like how the mental state affects pain. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, placebo effect, in pain, there, there's some studies that say maybe as high as 60 or 70 percent. It's pretty massive. It's pretty crazy because, like, I was talking to Dr. Perry Nicholson on my podcast last week, and I brought up a story of one of my clients where her mental state, when you know shit hits the fan, it just she just kind of brushes it off. Whereas, like, another person, if they experienced the same pain that she did, like their whole world would crash. Yeah. It's it's so interesting how if you're mentally strong, things like that won't affect you at all. <laughs> yeah, one one sort of practical tip that I found super helpful is if I have some type of injury, although I don't know if I would recommend everybody do this, but so for example, like two years ago, I was um, taking the B activated course from Doug Hill in Chicago. And a buddy of mine, we were down there. We decided to go to indoor racing track. I'm like, ah, this is going to be great. And long story short, I come around a corner and I skidded out. And a kid uh, didn't see me and hit me full speed on. And since he was so small, his little electric car came up and landed on top of me. <laughs> Jeez. And basically smushed my left knee at a pretty bad angle. So the guys who run the track come over, and they're just, like, staring at it, not knowing what to do. And I'm like, get get the car off me because I could feel it twisting my knee with the pressure. And my fear was I'm going to you know, blow my ACL. And so I eventually just grabbed the car and threw it off. And then I, I stood up, 
and you get that sensation where your knee feels like super wet. And my first thought is, I really hope it's actually bleeding. Because if it's bleeding, that explains that sensation. If it's not, oh boy, something's really bad. So I get up and I roll my pants up and it's, you know, it's bleeding and stuff. I'm like, oh, good. And then I purposely tried to walk around and do very light change of direction. My thought being, if I fall down on a big heap, then I know I've blown something really bad. If I can do that, I'm probably okay from a structural standpoint. Because once it swells, who knows, right? I mean, it's really hard to tell. Now, again, I'm not saying I recommend anybody do this for all, you know, for all practical purposes. Go to physical therapy, actually get it, you know, checked out, seek a professional. But in my brain, I'm thinking, okay, do I have any, you know, permanent damage that I need to see someone for right away? Or is it something that's going to be more temporary? Um, so in that case, I just really strained the, the MCL on the side, the whole left side of the knee turned uh, black, but it ended up being okay. Um, but I think related to pain, the main reason I do that is more for my personal mental state. Again, I'm not recommending other people do this because if I can prove to myself that I don't have structural damage, then I know, okay, I've got some swelling and I've got like an insult, but it won't take that long to heal. And I'm going to be okay. Or if you get like a slight tweak, can I do some type of movement? And if it doesn't show up again, okay, that means I just moved wrong, right? Because if you think about what you want with pain is if you move wrong, say, in a deadlift or an exercise, you want a massive amount of pain for a very short period of time, right? You want that indicator that, whoa, that's really bad. Don't do that again. But the second that stimulus is over, then it all goes away. If you think about people that have a lot of pain, that gain or central windup gets changed. So small insults can result in a lot of pain, and the whole signals and everything get kind of mixed up. Um, so the worst people to deal with with pain are people who are in pain all the time. Nothing makes it better, nothing makes it worse. So with clients, if they've got different levels of pain, you know, they're working with their physical therapist and things of that nature, I always explain to them that if your pain is better one day, and worse, another day, that's actually a really, really good thing because that means that something you're doing is modifying your pain. Something made it better and something made it worse. So at a high level, we just need to figure out the things that make it better and do more of those things, you know, like movement, exercise, nutrition, whatever, and then kind of for at least a while, stop doing the things that make it more painful. Because if you keep moving into pain, you keep running those motor patterns, so the uh, association, you know, heavy and learning, Hebb's law, that kind of stuff. You literally make it harder and harder to get out of pain, right? It's just a neural association. However, it works the other way too. So if you can do more movement that's not painful, you're literally training your brain that movement is not painful, and so you can kind of go the um, upward ascending spiral and not the downward ascending spiral. Oh, it makes sense, and like that's what I advocate to all my clients that start working with me because it's like almost every new person I get, I'm like, oh, do you have any injuries? They're like, no, but you know, my knee hurts, my low back sometimes gives out, yeah. and my shoulder hurts, and I'm like, okay, fair enough, and you know, I put them through their program, and you know, if you're a half decent coach, you should know 
you know, train pain free. If something doesn't feel right, adjust it. And then a couple a couple months go by, and I'm like, oh, so how's your knee, low back, and shoulder? And they're like, I haven't really thought about it. And I'm like, yeah, because we're doing pain free movement. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, hundred percent agree. Um, so I want to get into another question because like we're already almost at an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I like anytime I get a question from the audience, I always make sure I get them answered because like when I listen to podcasts and I send in a question, it never gets answered. So I'm like, damn you, podcast hosts. Um, oh yeah. So Marvin asks, uh, ask him about micronutrients, how they depend on balance amounts to function correctly. Something that comes to mind is the recommendation to take calcium separate from your magnesium. Yeah, so he's correct. I mean, in a perfect world, we would all eat lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, different types of meat. We'd eat from the rainbow. They'd be different colors, different seasons. Yeah, that doesn't happen with everyone. I mean, I'm actually a big proponent of using a good blended uh, multivitamin uh, there's some studies from uh, Julia Rockledge and others showing that under very high times of stress, uh, a blend of micronutrients can be helpful. Um, there's some studies from uh, Dr. Charlie Popper, who's at Harvard, about using that for different psychiatric conditions, possibly. Again, if people are going to do that, make sure they check with the psychiatric or the person that their client is working with. Because if they are on psychiatric meds, some micronutrients can change or amplify the effects of them. Um, but if they're not, then it's generally pretty safe. So I'm a big fan of using that. The, if you're doing that and it's a pretty good uh, formulated one, you don't have to worry too much about the interactions. That should be kind of taking care of it for you. And unless you're doing something really screwball with your diet and eating you know, tons of pounds of liver every day or something, you know, getting vitamin A overdose or weird stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty safe. I mean, vitamin A is the only one that really has a high toxicity. Uh, vitamin A sources are almost non-existent in most people's diets. We don't see that. Uh, one of the Arctic explorers died from too much uh, vitamin A. I think two of them did because uh, they ran out of food and they had to eat the, their dogs and they ate the livers, which were super high. I guess polar bear liver is one of the highest things in vitamin A. But if your option is eat the liver from polar bear, I think you've got other things that you probably <laughs> need to worry about. Um, other ones, even fat-soluble ones like D&E, you know, toxicity, frank toxicity is really high. Um but they all work together. So his point about calcium probably is correct. Um, taking calcium at different times is going to be better. In terms of interactions, you know, you can look at people who take too much zinc, you can deplete out copper. Uh, someone is taking a higher amount of a single B vitamin, I'd like them to take a B complex because all the B vitamins kind of work together. Um, for bone health, it used to be, hey, oh, just take calcium. And then they realize, oh, wait, calcium supplements are all crap unless you apply a stimulus like weight training. If you're not applying a stimulus, then it doesn't matter. A calcium supplement's not going to save you. But getting adequate amounts of calcium with a stimulus like weight training or possibly even running, jumping rope, something to stimulate the bone, that can be helpful. Then they realize, oh, wait, we need minerals to help with that. We probably need zinc. We probably need copper. We need manganese. We need boron. Ooh, vitamin D is important. Ooh, K is important. 
So the more we learn about stuff, the more we learn how everything kind of works together. So if you had to give advice for someone like brand new to like taking supplements in general to kind of cover all bases, like where should someone start? Yeah, my basis is I am a fan of uh, a well-formulated multivitamin. Um, I use one from a company called Neurosynergy. You can look them up. Uh, the Thorn uh, Elite AM and PM one's pretty good. Uh, I don't really make any money directly from either one of those per se, but if they want an affiliate link, I can find one for them. Um, those are probably my two favorites right now. Um, I'd say that's a good place to start. Other things that people are low on are fish oil, EPA and DHA. You know, probably looking to get around three grams combined to start. And that's because most people are low. Uh, especially if you're not eating a lot of cold water fish. Sadly, up until a couple of years ago, even farm salmon was high in EPA and DHA, so the fish oils themselves. Uh, sadly, that's not true anymore. A uh, vast majority of farm salmon is very low in fish oil because they changed the feed source that they give the fish. That had to do with some really screwball energy calculations and a bunch of other stuff. And if it's not in the feed, it's not going to be in the flesh of the fish either. So I think a fish oil supplement's a good idea. I'm a big fan of uh, creatine monohydrate because it's really cheap. For performance, it can help. And there's some really cool studies looking at neuroprotective effects. Uh, you may need a higher dose. Uh, performance around 5 grams per day. Um, neurologic stuff, maybe 10 to 20 grams a day, depending on uh, what you have going on and what you're trying to do. So for me personally, if I'm going to go on a kiteboarding trip and I possibly may get dropped out of the sky on my head, even though I wear a helmet, I will take uh, 20 grams of creatine for about three to four weeks ahead of time, hoping that if I do get dropped on my head, that maybe that'll help with a little bit of neuroprotection. No, fair enough. And maybe for the last question, because we're coming up to that hour, um, where can people find you online if they want more information? And anything else you want to plug on my show, you can right now. Awesome. Uh, best place is a website, just MikeTNelson.com, M-I-K-E-T-N-E-L-S-O-N. Uh, most of my articles and content goes out through the newsletter. There should be a little banner at the top, and you get a cool free gift at the same time. Uh, the other one is I have a certification, which is the Flex Diet. You can just go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. And what I did was it's the top sort of eight interventions that a trainer could do, more so on the training and or I should say more so on the nutrition and recovery side. So one of them is like uh, protein, one of them is carbohydrates, one of them is fat, things like sleep, exercise, neat, fasting. How do you take all those interventions and what is sort of a priority ranking of them? And then I break down into about a theory for about an hour of what you would need to know. Then I have specific action items for each one. And then that kind of all rolls up into a system that you can use with clients. So if you have a lot of clients, say, at a, a bigger gym or you're doing it online, I give you a system to walk them through the interventions that they would need, primarily nutrition and recovery, and uh, basically how to do that and to be 
educated on the theory of metabolic flexibility combined with flexible dieting at the same time. That's just flexdiet.com. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on here. Really appreciate it. All right, so that's going to wrap up episode 170, and I want to thank every single one of you out there listening from day one, and I want to thank all the new listeners listening to my show, because this thing has been growing since day one. We're almost at 200 episodes, so from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much, and I'm going to say this at the end of every single episode, share this podcast with your friends and family on every social media channel you can think of so we can reach more people, give them good information, and make the world a better place in the fitness and health realm. And for those who are not signed up yet, click the show notes, hit the subscribe link for the newsletter that I send out every Monday or Tuesday, depending on how busy I am, filled with a lot more great information about fitness and health. And I'll continue giving you the best podcast episodes out there. That's it for me uh, this week, you guys. Until next time.